Open your Bibles with me to Hosea chapter 9, if you will. This week, we are going to be working through four chapters in the same week that we are celebrating communion together. And you say, not possible. And I say, your first service, we'll do our best. Second service, we can go all afternoon. But first service, we are going to do our best. And of course, we're not going to hit every verse, but we are going to continue to work through the major themes because those major themes are plain and evident. And like Zach said, we've been working through quite an extended section of judgment here. Uh, God has made his case against Israel. And it's not just something that we can leave in the historic past. What we see is that God deals with sin. And as uncomfortable and as difficult as that might be to think about, we have to understand that God is a God who is holy, who is perfect, who is pure, and who must deal with sin, especially the sins of his people. And last week in particular, we saw that when God points out Israel's sin, they respond any way but the right way. Uh, They set their affections on the wrong thing. They set their hope in the wrong alliances. They approach God the wrong way. And all of that is ultimately because they love their sin more than they love God. And if we're honest, that's our problem as well. Why do I continue to sin? It's not because I don't know better. It's not because I don't have the resources available to make a different choice. At the end of the day, so often, why I continue to move in the same sinful patterns and ways is because I would rather do that and put that to death and follow after Christ. And so we're exposed to the fact that sin leads to judgment. And we don't want to think about that. We want to move toward redemption that we know is there, that we celebrate that is there. But we have to realize that sin is serious. And when we come to our text today, Hosea 9 through 12, uh, in part, it's some more of the same, but there's this radical turn that happens in chapter 11 where we begin to see the heart of God toward his people. We're going to see that the sins of the people lead them back to slavery, but that somehow, some way, God in his mercy still stands ready to extend salvation to his people. I'm going to read from chapter 10, Hosea chapter 10, starting in verse 11, just to kind of set the stage for the thought behind all of this. Hosea chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, God says, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, so that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. But you've plowed iniquity, and you've reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Let's pray. Lord, we think of Israel and Judah and your people so long ago and so far away, and if we're not careful, it all seems like a history lesson, a theological history lesson, but just a history lesson nonetheless. Lord, I ask that in your mercy you would open up our eyes. Lord, that you would train our hearts to see the truth in your word and the fact that while this is not written about us, this is written to us. That like Israel, we are face to face with the holy God. Like Israel, we are called to recognize the reality of our sins. And like Israel, we are called to repent, to turn, to pursue you with everything that we have. And Lord, just like in the days of Israel, you stand ready to forgive, to restore to shower mercy and kindness on your people because you are a good and faithful God and your steadfast love endures forever. So Lord, help us to see the truth as we open up your word this morning. 
We need your help to do that. And so we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So let me ask you a question. What do you think of when you think of God? What is God like to you? And of course you say, I couldn't answer that in a sentence or a paragraph or probably as long as you gave me, I couldn't answer that question. And of course that's true. Uh, We can't fully describe the God of the universe, infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing. You and I can know God truly, but we can't comprehend him fully. If we could get our minds and our hearts all the way around who he was, he would really cease to be God. He is that big, that majestic, that great. But when you close your eyes, when you pray, when you work through heartache, and sorrow, when you process victory and triumph, you have a conception of what God is like. And I think our tendency, at least based on what I hear, what I read, and what I know to be true in my own heart, is when we think of God, we tend to think in terms of two extremes. And it might vary depending on the situation. But there are times, and there are people, that in their conception of God, they have no problem comprehending His holiness that God hates sin, but they have trouble moving beyond that. A God who is holy, but a God who is angry, wrathful, maybe even resentful. A God who is pure, but a God who is cold and almost unapproachable. And we say that doesn't sound right, of course, because it's not right. But you have to understand that oftentimes people struggle to see God as something beyond an almighty law giver. And on the other extreme, we might struggle to see God as something, anything more than the fun uncle who who loves us, and that's about the end of the story. We understand maybe that God doesn't like sin, that he's generally opposed to sin, but ultimately this conception of God sees a God who is so loving and so merciful that all he's concerned with ultimately is my happiness. And so what drives me in that case is that God really is about me rather than my life being driven by who God is and what he's like. And and of course, the truth isn't in either of those extremes, but I want to also suggest that the truth isn't just a happy medium that lets us kind of live in a balance between those two. Here's what I want to suggest, and here's what I think Hosea 9 through 12 in particular bears out. When it comes to the God that we worship, when it comes to the God of the Bible, we are faced with two extremes that are so wildly beyond our conception that we can barely get a hold of it. God is more holy than you and I can imagine. God is more perfect than you and I can conceive of. God's hatred of sin is more intense than you and I can get our hearts around. And at the very same time, God is more merciful than we would dare to hope for. He is more kind and more compassionate and more loving than our hearts would even dare to dream of. And so you and I have this wonderful, beautiful privilege of living in the Christian tension between those two. And it's a tension that I do not hope to resolve because I need to be reminded of both of those things at any given moment in my life, that God is more spectacularly holy than I could comprehend and more loving and merciful than I could dare to imagine. 
And we need that because Israel missed it. Israel missed it, and in the process, missed living in fellowship and blessing of God. So today we're going to see two things. Today we're going to see what happens to a faithless people. And then we're going to look at a father's heart. And as we open up chapters 9 and chapter 10, and we look at what happens to a faithless people, we are going to see what sin results in. Because when we sin, when we move in our own way, we have this conception of what it will be like, what it will bring us. Israel had its understanding of what their sin would bring them. And God is going to remove things that will show them the truth. And the first thing uh, that we see in chapter 9 that sets the stage, it's not one of the things that he removes. It's what sets the stage is that this is a people who have forsaken God. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You've loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. Israel is pictured as a people who has utterly forsaken and abandoned God. If that much is not clear by this point, you haven't been reading along with us. But what is going to happen as a result of that? The first thing that is going to happen is God is going to remove their freedom. Look at verse 2. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. By this point, we know that in their fallen thinking, Israel knows they need help. But they refuse to go to God for help, and instead they sell themselves. That's a picture here. They graphically sell themselves to the idols and to the nations around them, hoping to find their help in those things. Israel understands, or in their fallen understanding, they think that they have the freedom to do whatever they need to do to help their situation. Sin does that. Sin convinces you and I that we are autonomous creatures content and able to do what we want, to satisfy our needs, to fill our desires. And God is going to remove Israel's freedom. He said, because they seek their own way, they're not going to remain in the land of the Lord. And that is critical in verse 3. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord. Because what did Israel think? That this was their land. Now, this was Abraham's inheritance. This was their home. But this never stopped being God's place. He entrusted it to his people. And they treated it however they want. They acted however they want. They exercised their freedom however they wanted they would have done well to remember that this was God's land and that he had removed the people before them for their wickedness and that God hadn't changed. How often do you and I need reminders that what we have isn't ours? Because when I see something is mine and I have control over it, I tend to treat it however I want, whether that's carelessly as a toy when I was a kid or whether that's carelessly in a relationship when we're older. When I see something is mine to possess... I tend to take it lightly. When we see something is being entrusted to us by someone greater, we tend to care for it more. And Israel didn't care for what they had. And so Ephraim shall return to Egypt and they'll eat unclean food in Assyria. The reality is they're going to go back into slavery like their ancestors. Their sin is not going to lead them to freedom like they think it will. Their sin is going to lead them to slavery. And that's what Egypt was. In the national memory, Egypt is the place of slavery and bondage. Now we know that Assyria is going to be the ones that come in and wipe them out. But it is going to be just like the days of of Egypt. No freedom. No independence. No nation. Not only is God going to remove their freedom... But he's going to remove their failed worship. Look at verse 4. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please him. It will be like mourner's bread to them. 
All who eat of it will be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only, and it shall not come to the house of the Lord. God says, I'm going to put an end to the sacrifices. And then read verse 5, and there's this scorn in there. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they're going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. Israel, what are you going to do? Right now, you're content to offer me whatever you want, in whatever way you want, wherever you want. What are you going to do when I take all of that away? What are you going to do when the city and the place where you sacrifice is destroyed and there's thorns where houses used to be? What are you going to do when you go to worship and there's no place to do it? And we know that Assyria is not only going to wipe out Israel and the northern kingdom, but that Judah is going to experience a similar judgment when Nebuchadnezzar comes and wipes out the temple in Jerusalem in the south. The reality is, sin had made it so that these people thought they could approach God in any way that they wanted. That any worship was just as good as real worship. That any approach to God, any show of sincerity, was good enough for the God of all creation. Our sin blinds us in the same way. Sin makes us think that any approach to God is a good enough approach to God. Sin makes us think that any acknowledgement of any conception of any God whatsoever, so long as it's sincere, must be valid. You have to understand that God is determined that He will be worshipped His way. God gave Israel the times and the places and the means of approaching Him, and they said, no thanks, we'll do it our way. God has given you and I the reality of what worship looks like. Perhaps not as detailed in the description as the law, but certainly he has given you and I an understanding of what real worship looks like. The problem is our sin tells us that I can worship however I want. As long as I call it dedicated to God, it's going to be fine. And the rest of this chapter focuses on the fact that God is not only going to remove their freedom and remove their worship, He's going to remove their provision. Up until this point, God in His kindness had sustained them as a nation. And you remember what Hosea was supposed to name his second child, Lo Ruhama, no mercy. The time for mercy is over. (laughs) Even though they were rebellious, even though they were wicked, God still sustained them, but that's coming to an end. Chapter 9, verse 11, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. One of the specific curses laid out against Israel in Leviticus 26, you remember we read that so long ago, was that God would remove children from them. He would bless them. He would make them fruitful. He would multiply them when they were obedient, but they would see the impact from generation to generation as they were sinful. And if we're not careful, we begin to see God as kind of mean here because that is a, that's a difficult picture. The idea of God closing up wombs, bereaving them of children. If you've ever known someone who has lost a child, you begin to see the heartache that's involved in that. God says, I'm going to do that to the nation. How mean? How could God do that? What we forget is that Israel knew. They had every reason to know. They had every warning. It was so clear. And again, it's why we ground this whole study in terms of Leviticus 26. Do these things and I will bless you. 
But if you fail to obey, I'm going to punish you so that you see that the path you're on leads only to destruction. And measure by measure, piece by piece, God is going to show the people what their sin is going to cost them. Leviticus 26, starting in verse 27, this is what he says. But if you will not listen to me, if you walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. I will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You'll eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I'll destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars. And I'll cast your dead bodies on the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. I'll lay waste to your cities. I'll make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I'll scatter you among the nations. I'll unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation. Your cities shall be a waste. Doesn't that sound like exactly what he's been saying over the last several chapters? God is not a cosmic bully looking to inflict pain on the poor innocent humans down on earth. God in his kindness has given them warning after warning for 200 years the people have seen this. And they refuse to turn. Sin says that I will meet my own needs. And sin says that when it gets harder, what I need to do is work harder so that my needs get met more easily. That I am the captain of my soul. That I am the master of my fate. That I stand at the head of my life able and ready to provide for every need that might come my way either through cunning, through power, or through sheer hard work. Sin says that I can provide for myself. God is going to make it clear that he is the one that provides for his people when he removes that provision. And finally, chapter 10, which we're going to cover very quickly, not because it's not important, but because it has a central theme that's still connected to all of this. In chapter 10, God continues to talk about judgment for their sin, but in particular, we're going to see in chapter 10 that God promises that he is also going to remove their king. In verse 1, Israel's pictured as this luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. But the more the fruit increased, the more altars he built. In other words, the more powerful, the more prosperous Israel gets, the more sinful Israel gets. And that picture of a vine is a very consistent one in the Old Testament for Israel. Israel's often shown as this vine that God plants, this vine that God cares for, the ground that he prepares, uh, the walls that he builds to protect it. It's this vine that has every reason to produce good and lasting fruit, but it keeps producing either nothing or terrible things. So what do you do with a failed fruit tree? What do you do with a failed vine? Do you keep feeding it? Do you keep watering it? Do you keep using resources to sustain it? You don't in your gardens, do you? No, you dig it up. And a part of the digging up, a key part of the removal of the nation, theologically, is God removing the king that he has set over the people. Look at verse 3. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? See, they're going to be brought to the place where they have to acknowledge that their kings are not what God called for. And more than that, even if they had a king, he couldn't do anything about their situation. See, they had set up their own rulers because sin says that I can choose what authority I follow. If you look at the next slide, there's a map up there, and you see the capital city of Samaria. And that's where the kings of Israel reigned from. 
That's not where God had set his place. That is not where God had established his kings. It is simply where the people decided to institute their own form of government. And so look at as he say in verse 7, Samaria's king, that's the city of Samaria there, Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. That is a really interesting visual picture there. Their kings are going to be like a little twig on the surface of rough waters. Do you know how powerful kingdoms are portrayed often in Scripture? Like mighty trees. Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, kingdom was pictured like a big tree. Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven is pictured like a tree whose branches are wide and spreading. Christ is called the branch, the root. There's these metaphors for strength in an established, rooted, grounded tree. But what are the kings of Israel like? Not a mighty tree, like a broken little stick that's carried along by the waters. Destruction's coming, and there's really nothing they can do to stop it. And the people are going to cry out, it says, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. And that should sound familiar if you've read the book of Revelation. That same judgment language is picked up here, and that's not an accident. It is another sermon. People have planted rebellion, and they have reaped judgment and heartache. And look at verse 15. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. Again, you can see the city of Bethel right on the border between Israel and Judah there. That's one of the places where they set up those golden calves for worship. And so it's again pictured of the rebellion of these people. This it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. There's a cutting off judgment coming for the king of Israel. It's interesting that it says at dawn. It implies something early, something that happens quickly. And if you read historically, Hosea, the last king of Israel, was actually captured even before the siege of Samaria was put in place. He goes away very, very quickly as the judgment comes. God is perfectly faithful even to the details of his word, but the reality is that the king is going to be removed from the people, but why does that matter? Why talk about why focus on the king at all? Well, because the king means something to the people and to the promise of God. The kings were identified with the people as a whole. The kings kind of determined how the nation went. As the king went, so goes the nation. You'll see this in Judah from time to time when a good king comes up and he leads the nation in mourning and repentance and a return to the Lord and consequently back into blessing and God's provision. You see it in Israel, wicked king after wicked king leading the people farther and farther away from God. Why else talk about the king? Because the king is also tied theologically to how God views his people. The kings of Israel are called the sons of God. That idea of sonship is built into 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant there. It gets a little into the weeds theologically, but you have to understand that the king is not just a political entity. The people cried out for a king like all the nations around them, and God says, I'm going to give you a king, but ultimately it's not going to be like any king from any of the other nations more on that in a bit. But God is going to remove the authorities that they have set over themselves, political and religious, because guess what? Sin says, I determine what authority I follow. My sin tells me that I choose who I follow, when I follow them, and how far I follow them. Because ultimately, sin says the final authority is who? Me. That works beautifully in our political system, by the way. 
where my rights are held above everything else. And by the way, I am deeply thankful for our system where we have an input into our leadership. But it also makes it very easy to forget that God establishes rulers and authorities and that we are called to submission. Sin doesn't want to submit to anything except self. Israel, in their sin, was convinced that they determined their freedom, that they determined their worship, that they determined their provision, that they determined their authority. And we have to set that up. We have to understand all of their assumptions about sin. We have to understand all the reality that God is going to remove all of those things because then chapter 11 hits like a sledgehammer that we are not expecting. Because look at how chapter 11 opens. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As we move into chapter 11, what we are going to be seeing here is God not as judge, but God as father. which doesn't mean that he is not the judge. It simply means that God is going to display his heart for these people. He's fallen, failed, rebellious, helpless, sinful people. And to start, Hosea looks back to the past. He looks to Israel's past. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. You want the historical big picture of how God interacts with his people? like a father toward his children. From the very beginning, when Israel was a child, when Israel was nothing, when Israel was small, I loved him. What's the picture of Israel in its infancy? It's actually in slavery. God makes promises to Abraham, but he doesn't live to see the fulfillment of those things. It's not a multitude. It's not a nation of people that go down to Egypt. It's a few. It's a family. And in Egypt, it's almost as if the nation comes into being. In the womb of slavery in Egypt, the nation grows and matures and they are delivered out of bondage. And it's like the birth of a child and you have this new nation. And God loves them. He pours out his affection on them and his provision on them. He leads them into the promised land. And so when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And God didn't love the people that were the biggest and the best and had the most to offer him. Deuteronomy 7.7 7, God says, it was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh in Egypt. Why does God love these people? Because he does. Why does God love these people? Because he made promises to Abraham to bless them, promises to multiply them, promises to give them a place. And so you see this affection of God from the very beginning. We have to look a little bit more at this verse, and don't lose me here for the theological nuance that this is. It's important because it impacts how we read our New Testament. This verse might sound a little bit familiar, especially for those of you that were with us as we studied Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 2, the wise men from the east, the magi, come looking for the Christ child. And they go to Herod and they say, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? And eventually they work their way to Bethlehem and they're warned to leave another way after they worship Christ, the child there. And Herod, who is a wicked and insecure king, is furious at the idea that someone might take his power. And so he orders that every boy in the vicinity of Bethlehem, two years and under, be killed. 
a murder of children to secure his own power. And given that order, Joseph and Mary are warned and they flee to Egypt until Herod is dead. And after Herod's death, they come back. And in Matthew 2.15, Matthew writes, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. He takes Hosea 11.1 and he applies it to Christ coming up out of Egypt. And there are theologians who would then use this as a text that says the New Testament is able then to reinterpret the Old Testament. That New Testament authors will take something written in the law or the prophets and give it a new meaning, a meaning that would have been foreign to what the author intended. They are not saying, let me be very careful, they are not saying that the Old Testament is not important. They are not saying that the Old Testament is not inspired. They would simply say that the New Testament has priority in how we read the Old Testament. Now it is true that as Hosea writes these words, he is referring to a specific historical event, but we have to ask the question, is that all that he is referring to? How has Hosea used the Exodus all the way through his book? Every time, it is with an eye to the past, but also looking toward what? Toward the future. Every time Hosea mentions the Exodus, it is looking at the bondage of the past and looking to an upcoming bondage that is coming in the future, and not only to a bondage in the future, but a future redemption. And when Hosea talks about the redemption that is going to come, it is not just a general redemption, it is a redemption that is led by a very specific person. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 11, he says that the people are going to be gathered together, Israel and Judah reunited, and that they are under one head. In Hosea chapter 2, God says he's going to call his people out into the wilderness again, but he's going to make the valley of Achor like a door of hope. It's going to be like the Exodus, but better. There's going to be hope where there was judgment before. In Hosea chapter 3, he said that in the last days, they are going to seek the Lord and David their king, and they're going to come in the fear of of the Lord in the latter day. Now very, very quickly, look at chapter 11, verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. He is putting this piece in Hosea chapter 11 in the context of all the other prophecies that he's made, not only about bondage, but about redemption from bondage, and not only about redemption from bondage, but about the one who will lead them out of bondage. And now you take all of that, and you read Matthew chapter 2, and he doesn't take Hosea out of context at all. In fact, he simply speaks more about Hosea than we dare to understand as we read Matthew's gospel most of the time. He knew exactly what Hosea was writing about. The New Testament does not reinterpret or give foreign meaning to Old Testament passages. It will clarify what the prophets showed dimly. But we don't have to reimagine Hosea to fit Matthew's context. Matthew fits Hosea beautifully into his context. Theological freebie. Back to where we're going. God sees Israel as his precious child. Even in verse 3, that picture continues. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took him up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Can you imagine this? The infinite God of all creation, holy, powerful, speaking things into existence. How does he allow himself to be pictured here? Like a dad who's bending down, holding the arms of his toddler, just learning to walk. And as they take those faltering first steps, he's there holding them up, keeping them from falling. That's how his love is shown toward Israel. 
that as the nation is finding its feet, He's the one holding their arms, giving them strength as they go on that way. He's kind to them. He feeds them. But what is the present reality? This is all the care, all the love that's been demonstrated at every point in their past, but what's the present reality? Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. It was He that loved them from the beginning. It was He who taught them to walk. And as soon as they could walk, what did they do? They ran away. It was He who gave them strength. And what did they use their strength to do? To push Him away. Can you imagine the heartbreak of the Father in that context? Who pours out His love on His children and they do nothing but reject and rebel against Him. Do not sanitize the Scriptures. There is heartbreak in here. And God is not ruled and governed by fallen emotions like ours, but God loves these people. And He takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. God is not delighting in the fact that He has to judge. Look at what He says. Verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? They say, that doesn't mean anything to me. Giving up and handing over, that's judgment terms. To be given up, to be handed over, means to be given to destruction. How can I make you like Adma and like Zeboim? I don't recognize those. If you go back and you read Genesis, those are cities that allied with Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are cities that are ultimately and utterly consumed as God rains down judgment from heaven and God looks at Israel, his child, and he says, how could I do that to you? I'm holy and I must deal with sin. How could I destroy you, my precious child that I've loved from the beginning? And here's the promise. My heart recoils within me. Picture the heart of God recoiling at judgment. But here's the promise. My heart recoils within me, but my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Burning anger is going to give way to warm compassion and tenderness. How is that even possible? The rest of verse 9. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. You want to know how God can be just and the justifier? How God can be holy and merciful? Because he's not like us. Where we struggle and find it impossible to balance those things, God doesn't. And there's a look back here that we might miss. It's a look back to the book of Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19 where it says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? How can God treat them like this? Even in their wickedness, even in their rebellion, how can he say that he loves them? How can he promise not to destroy them? Because God can't lie. And what had God promised? At the foot of Sinai, that covenant had conditions. To enter and live peaceably in this land, you will obey. But the promises that God made to Abraham did not have conditions. Abraham, out of all the world, 
I have chosen you and your family. And I will multiply you and make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and I will give you a land as your eternal inheritance. And the reality is that God is always faithful, even to a faithless people. They are going to be judged. They are going to be disciplined. They are going to be removed from the land. But look at verse 10. It's going to come about in time that they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children will come trembling from the west. They'll come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. That's the heart of a father. Love that sees the eternal good of his children. Even when they reject him, even when they hate his love. It's a love that disciplines, but it's a love that seeks out and restores. And you might be looking at your Bibles and noticing that we still have a whole chapter to go. And then you look at your watch and you say, Pastor Matt's in trouble. That is true on any given week. (laughs) But we're actually just going to use chapter 12 as part of our application today. Because what this is, is this is a reality that demands a response. Okay, God is not a choose-your-own-adventure book. God is not a determine him however your heart can conceive of him. God stands as ultimate reality as pictured in his word. What are you going to do with this kind of God? That's the question. What are you going to do with this kind of God? A God who is unfailing and uncompromising when it comes to holiness. A God who hates sin and says, you, my people, must be holy as I am holy. A God who calls his people to be different from the world around them, even though it makes them aliens and strangers, even though it will cost them greatly, even though it will drive them directly into trouble, God says you must be different because on the other side of that is a God who has mercy and compassion and loves his people, who will provide, who will restore, who will forgive them. A God who stands ready after all of our failure to forgive us. And verse 12 at the end of chapter 11 should actually probably go with chapter 12. What does Israel do? Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with, de- with deceit. And then the ESV, and if you have a KJV or an NKJV, says Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. That is grammatically possible. I think the NASB and the NIV have a better translation when it goes with the idea that Judah is also still rebellious that Judah is still unruly against God. Because chapter 12, don't read a break there, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. This is the picture of Israel and Judah as children that will not listen to the warning. And it gives this kind of picture of Jacob as a figure from Israel's past, one who spent his life wrestling with God, in the womb, grabbing the heel of his brother, fighting for that place of prominence, deceiving his father to get the birthright, struggling literally with an angel and not letting go 
but begging for a blessing. And if you look at verse 6, Hosea says, So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Jacob might have been a scoundrel in a lot of ways, but at least he fought for the blessing of God. Israel, with God's help, would you not turn and do the same? Look, you and I, given the reality of this kind of a holy God, will you not turn to this God and do whatever He calls you to do to obtain the blessing that He's promised? And there are only two responses, and here's the first response. You hear all of this, and you just carry on in your sin. You hear all of this. You see this kind of God, and you still determine, I'm going to decide how free I am. I'm going to determine how I worship, who I worship, and when I worship. I am going to provide for my own needs because ultimately I am my own authority. Or you can come to the response that God calls us to in light of a God who is holier than you can conceive of, in light of the reality that sin is worse than you can imagine, in light of the fact that God is more loving and merciful than you and I dare hope for, will you not repent? Surrender to Him. That goes against everything our flesh wants because I want to work harder. I want to do better. I want to make God like me or at the very least make God think that I'm better than the next guy so He's obligated to let me in. God doesn't need your best because your best isn't good enough. That's not nice. No, that's freeing. Because otherwise, you and I spend our whole lives trying to do our best, never knowing whether our best was good enough. Let me just shatter those misconceptions and tell you your best is not good enough, but it doesn't have to be. Because Christ accomplished what you and I could not. God provided what was perfect to stand in our place. And so the call is to come to Him and call our sin what He calls our sin. Rebellion against a God who is holy and pure and to ask full of faith for that mercy that He promises to provide. And when we do that, we find that we live in the blessing of God. Not ease, not comfort, not freedom from conflict, but the ability to walk even in hardship and conflict in a fallen world with love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you and I have the ability to celebrate communion together today. What a great way to drive home our response. What a great time to think through those things. Now, as we prepare to celebrate communion, if you didn't get the elements on your way and the ushers will come down now, please note there are two different types of communion elements today. Some are gluten-free, some are not. Make sure you grab the right ones. A crisis in faith is something we can pray through. A crisis in health is something we have to farm out. But as we sit and as we ponder these things, I want you to think through a couple of things today. First of all, if you do not know this God, then please don't take communion thinking that bread and a cup will somehow make you worthy to enter into His presence. This is a reminder, a reminder of what Christ has done for us. Second, some of you are working through a difficult time, and I would like you to think through whether that might be God's discipline in your life. And if God is working in difficulty in your life because of sins you won't give up, then rather than respond in anger and chafing against that discipline, will you thank Him for it? 
Because Hebrews tells us that God loves the sons that he disciplines. He loves us enough to correct us. You realize that the judgments that God pours out against Israel are an act of love? Come back, come back, come back. And maybe today you are walking through your life in a way that is difficult because God is telling you, turn and come back. Next, is there sin that you need to confess? Is there a small sin that you continue to excuse? Is there a compromise in your life that you continue to justify because it makes things easier, because it makes life smoother? Is there a way that you've convinced yourself that that sin is either worth it or maybe just goes unnoticed? This is a time of repentance and reflection because that God that we come to is holier than we can even imagine. Or maybe there's someone today you need to consider how to forgive. You say, but I can't forgive that. Read Hebrews 11 again. A God who forgives the unimaginable, who forgives the unforgivable. A God who loves his children more tenderly and more fiercely, I think, than we can even conceive of. And if that's how he loves us, then that's how he's called us to love others. So we're going to give you just a minute to pray, to prepare your hearts practically, Prepare those communion elements, especially the new ones. They're a little bit tricky at the top. And then I'll come back and we'll read through and take the elements together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks to another group of people that struggled with their faith and with obedience. And he says to that church, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the body that bore the weight of our sin on the cross. For the eternal Son of God, the infinite Holy One, who took on flesh and became a faithful and merciful high priest for us. Lord, our hearts rejoice because you have provided what we could not, salvation from our sins. Amen.